Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. All right, I know we prayed a moment ago, but let's pray again. Jesus, as we come to your word together, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, it is a mystery. (laughs) These things that you've called us to, even just the practices of the church, a holy meal, the Lord's Supper that we share in together, just bread and a cup of juice, and yet somehow in the mystery of your grace, it is the means of your sustaining life to us, water in a tank that we are baptized in that somehow is the, a celebration of your saving us, taking us into your grave and raising us up into your life, immersing us into your life. And, and this, preaching, someone standing up on a platform and opening up some portion of scripture that somehow we ask you would make the means of your living voice to our real lives today. You have done it again and again and again, and we ask that you would again today. Because we need you, God, each of us. Our lives need your breath, your voice today, your revelation, your understanding, your saving action. So we just give you ourselves, we give you one another, we give you the women and men sitting around us that we don't yet know, and those that we know well, and we ask God, come, open our hearts to hear your voice today, and would you speak among us today, by your grace, for your glory, God. Amen? Amen. Well, if you are just joining us today, and I know some of you are, um, last Sunday was an introduction to a new series that we're going to be in for a bit. That's my way of saying I haven't determined yet how long it's going to be. The series is called All Things New, a study on the gospel change in everyday life in Jesus. The series title comes from Jesus' declaration in Revelation 21, verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. And while Jesus' words there in Revelation 21, in their context, are used to refer to the grandest all of all things, the whole of creation, all things in heaven and on earth, Jesus' words here are also deeply personal. They are addressed to each of us about us. They declare God's vision God's dream, God's goal, God's desire for each of us. And not just on the surface of our lives, but deep into the core of who we are. As we said at the close last Sunday, in the grace of God, Jesus, the one who says, behold, I am making all things new, is the same Jesus who says to you and I, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you new which many of us know we need deeply. Because as we said last Sunday, it is too easy to only be a Christian on the surface. 
And so as you step back into today, or maybe as you walked out last week, or maybe as you just join us today, I wonder what it is that you are holding tentatively before God, that part of you that you can name, that you feel a need for God's deep change. Where do you want to be made new by Jesus? If I was a life coach or fitness coach, and I am neither, I think the question in this moment would be, so what do you want to change? What's your goal? And I suspect most of us can name something. Maybe we have already in our minds. If not a few things, maybe many things. Parts of our heart, our life, our habits, our ways of relating and responding that we know are so often deeply out of sync with Jesus and that eat at our relationships and eat at our own soul. Which are helpful to know about ourselves as much as we don't like it. It is helpful to name these areas because part of seeking change in our lives requires us to see what is wrong, what is off, what is out of sync with God. But I want to suggest today that the starting point of seeking and experiencing God's renewing work in our lives isn't found in simply naming our desired change, but in seeing and being captivated by God's vision for us, God's goal for us, God's vision for change in you and in me. Just last week, I heard someone refer to this as the difference between asking a Christian friend, maybe in confidence, once a month, so how have you failed of late? And asking, so what kind of person do you want to become? Those are very different questions that take us very different distances. How did you fail this week? It's a good question. It's a needed question. Some of us need to answer that more regularly. But it is a different thing to be asked. So who, what kind of person do you want to become? What kind of person does God want to make you? So often I think our pursuit of holiness, of life with God, has been primarily built on the urgency of our nameable failures, our bad habits, our brokenness, our sin, the things we dislike about ourselves that we want to finally address. But if that's our sole driver for seeking God's renewing work in us, I suspect we will always settle for something far less than what God truly wants. Which is worth considering as we step into the liturgical season of Lent, some of us uh, no, this past Wednesday it was Ash Wednesday, and the season of Lent has begun. A season that involves usually some fasting. But it's worth naming this because it's, it's too easy to practice Lent as just a liturgically prompted weight loss plan. Uh, a season of abstinence from something that we know we should cut back on anyways. And the church is kind of blessing us in it, which is fine, maybe good. Maybe it's good to take a break from that. But that's not the heart of Lent. <laughs> Lent is about opening ourselves up to the deep work of God. Our desperate need for the death of Jesus to crush our sin and the life of Jesus to raise us up. Not just an 
another shallow attempt or attempt at shallow self-improvement. Lent is an invitation to a deep and holy yes to God, not just a surface no to something that we know isn't that good for us anyways. So I'll say it again, our pursuit of holiness, so often our pursuit of holiness has been primarily built on the urgency of nameable, our nameable failures, bad habits, brokenness, and sin, the things we dislike about ourselves and want to address. But if that is our sole driver for seeking God's renewing work in us, I suspect we will always settle for something far less than what God truly wants. And that's what I want us to consider together this morning. Not merely our place of desired change, though I think it is good for us to name those, but for us to consider God's desire, God's invitation, God's dream, God's original vision, which is still his vision for us. And I say this because this is what Jesus says in Revelation 21 verse five, when he says, behold, I am making all things new. Notice that word new. As we talked about before in biblical Greek, there are two different words that we translate as new. Neos and kainos. Neos refers to new in time or origin. In other words, brand new things. And kainos refers to new in quality or nature. In other words, restored. Being made the way you were intended to be. Intended to work, intended to live. In Revelation 21, verse five, Jesus uses the second word for new. Behold, I am making all things kainos. I am restoring all things to what they were intended to be. I'm making all things what they were intended to be. That is God's vision for change for you and for me. So what were we intended to be? Thank you for asking. That was great. Genesis 1, 27 tells us, first page of the Bible, or maybe second page, depending on word count. So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is much that we could draw from this verse, but for our purposes today, here is the big idea that matters. On the opening page of the Bible, we are told that at the heart of what it means to be human is to be made in the image of God. This idea being that we were made to know God, to love God, to live our lives hand in hand with God, soul to soul, that that God would be our center and our source. And as we live in this, that we would reflect God to others. We would reflect God's ways to others. We would mirror God. We would image God, God's heart, God's values, God's delights, God's joys and desires, God's will, God's ways in how we live and relate and care for one another and ourselves and creation. And not as some awkward attempt to be like God, but as the most natural expression of our being because God's life is our life. This is the amazing, one of the amazing revelations of Genesis 1, that we were created to not, to be not just a recipient of God's glory, grace, holiness, life, care, kindness, blessing, but we would be a participant in God's glory, grace, holiness, 
life. This is what it means to be made in God's image. In the ancient world, it was common, commonly believed that the gods would build a temple to dwell in, right? People would go to that temple to meet with that God. At the heart of that temple, at the center of that temple, they would place an idol made in the image of the God, representing them on earth. We've talked about this before. Many of us grew up studying King Tut in our school years, Tutankhamun. His name literally means in the image of Amun. This is just one example of how in much of the ancient world, the king or the pharaoh and maybe his male heir was believed to be made in the image of the God. So much so that the king's voice and will and desires were experienced and received as the voice, will, and desires of the God. But in the Genesis narrative, we hear something totally different. In the Genesis narrative, all of creation is presented as God's temple. In other words, God can be found in all places, in all of creation. And into God's creation temple, God places humanity and breathes his spirit upon them that they might, we might bear his image. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. And I want us to notice here in Genesis, this honor is given to all of humanity, not just the king or the pharaoh or his male heir, but to Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. As far as I know, this is unparalleled in the creation stories of the ancient world, that this honor would be given to all, including women, including those not in power, to all. So God created humanity in his image. This, according to Genesis, is at the heart of what it means to be human. How often do we say in the moment of failure, in comfort to ourselves, and there's, there's goodness in this. We say, ah, hey, it's just human. Oh my goodness, that is so not what human means in the biblical narrative. It is a declaration that you have been made in the image of God. You have been made to know God, his character, his will, his ways, not just because you studied a book, because you have come into a living encounter with God to love God, to live with God as your source and center and out of the overflow of this to reflect God's glory and will in all that we are and do and how we care for one another, for ourselves and for all of creation. This is what we were made for. This is God's vision for humanity, for God's glory, for the sake of the world and our joy in him. And I know some of you heard me say that little refrain a million times already in my almost seven years. And I hope that with every passing year that becomes more beautiful and true for you, for God's glory, for the sake of the world and our joy in him. Everything God does is to that end. But sadly, though, this is what we were made for. God's image in us has been distorted, right? Not eradicated, it's why you and I know people who don't care anything about Jesus, who are still great neighbors, care about doing their work because we've all been made in the image of God and the image of God has not been eradicated from humanity, but it has been disfigured in us because of sin. This familiar but broken instinct in all of us to seek our center and source in something other than God. That's what sin is. Sin isn't 
just not doing this thing or doing that thing we said we'd never do or not grinding extra coffee grounds for our spouse. No. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I just said it's not, it's not that. It's not that. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> Marital moment. That's my wife, Janet. I totally lost the, the point there. Wrong. My apologies. But let's be honest. Too often when we think about sin, we're only listing off those things. Those things that we do, those things that we don't do. But those are actually expressions. Those are what the Bible would call sins in their particularity. And they are the outflow of sin. This familiar but broken instinct in the core of our being to seek our center and source in something other than God. Or to simply place ourselves at the center of our story, to be our own God. And we wonder why our lives are so fractured. We were made to be centered in God, alive with his glory, our lives open with his life, and we've turned away from the center that is life to seek it in something else or simply in ourselves, and we have cut ourselves off from the life of God, and we wonder why our lives are so fractured. Reflecting on this, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23 offers this precise assessment. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Many of us know that verse, and I wonder if we've had the thought. I know I have at times. Of course we fall short of the glory of God. We are not God. And that is true. But we were made for the glory of God. You were made for the glory of God. You were made to be alive in God and with God, to know God's glory, his character, his will, his ways, his heart, and not just as study information, but through a living, a real living relationship, to be alive with God's glory, his image bearer, a walking, breathing, relating expression of God's holiness and glory on earth as it is in heaven. But sin has robbed us of this. It has turned us away from God and in on ourselves. It has cut us off from God's empowering presence. And as a result, our lives no longer bear God's image. We don't truly know God and live in vital union with him. Our hearts no longer beat with God's heart. Our lives no longer are lived in sync with God's life. In fleeting moments, yes, or kind of, thank God, but not in a sustained way. And we know it. We know it. We feel it. Can we be a church that's honest about that? God has made us for something. We see it, but in us we find a different power at play. Tim Chester, pastor and author, whom I greatly appreciate, reflecting on this says, we have failed to be the image of God that we were made to be. We can't be the people we want to be, let alone the people we ought to be. I appreciate the honesty of that so much, that because of sin, we can't be the people we want to be, let alone the people we ought to be. And as an aside, as heavy as that is, it's moments like this 
that I'm struck with the reality that despite what many people think and say, that the Bible is just escapist literature for people who don't wanna deal with reality, the fundamental biblical narrative makes incredible sense of life as we know it. Life in this world, life in this skin. But thankfully that's not all it offers to us because according to the New Testament, into this broken world, cut off from God's empowering presence comes Jesus, the true image. Think about this with me. According to the New Testament, Jesus is not only the hope of the world, the savior of the cosmos, but he is also the true image of God. In flesh, in human form, a walking, talking, breathing, fully human revelation of God's glory, God's holiness, God's image. Colossians 1.15 says it beautifully, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We were made in, in the beginning to bear God's image and it's been broken in us. But Jesus comes as the image of the invisible God firstborn over all creation. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. John 1 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I love how that last verse kind of flips the description, describing how Jesus, not using the language of being God's image, but that Jesus, in Jesus, we have seen. We have seen God's glory because he has borne God's image to us. All that to say, Jesus is the true and perfect image bearer. The one who lived and lives utterly and completely in the Father's heart and whose every breath, every action, every desire, every impulse is a participation in and revelation of the glory of God, the holiness of God. And before we get all flowery and ethereal in our ideas of what God's glory and holiness looks like in the life of a person, we need to pause and consider the real everyday life and person of Jesus. Because if we're honest, many of us have ideas about holiness that, are, that run deeply counter to what we see in Jesus. Many of us, if I described someone to you and said they're really holy, inside would be like, I don't know if I want to have lunch with them. <laughs> we have these ideas about holiness that are more Buddhist or Hindu, not that you don't want to know your Hindu or Buddhist neighbor, but these ideas about holiness that are about detachment, about being unmoved, uh, about standing at a distance from suffering and whatever comes, you're just in your own state. About being spiritual, so spiritual that you're, you can't enjoy a good cup of coffee because that's earthy, unspiritual. We don't see any of this in Jesus. In Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being in Jesus, we discover someone who was surprisingly and beautifully human. Fact is, if Genesis 1 is right, I think it is, 
and bearing God's image is the essence of what it means to be truly human, then Jesus is the most human person you and I will ever know. Because from a Christian perspective, to be holy is to be truly human. I love how J.I. Packer, wise theologian, once distilled that he wrote, our Lord Jesus Christ is both God for a man and man for God. He is God's incarnate son, fully divine, fully human. We know him as both the mediator of divine grace and the model of human godliness. And what is human godliness? The godliness that is true holiness as seen in Jesus. I love this. He says it is simply human life lived as the creator intended. In other words, it is perfect and ideal humanness. An existence in which the elements of the human person are completely united in a totally God-honoring and nature-fulfilling way. Let me read that again, that last part. It is, that is, holiness is simply human life lived as the creator intended it. It is perfect and ideal humanness, an existence in which the elements of the human person are completely united in a totally God-honoring and nature-fulfilling way. Man, we need to hear that. Because so often people think, talk, maybe we do, about the Christian life as profoundly repressive, a dehumanizing endeavor to suppress one's deepest self. But in Jesus, we see the exact opposite. In Jesus, we are invited to see that to be holy is to be simply and truly human as we were intended to be. It is simply human life lived as the creator intended it. Packer says. Okay, awesome, great, but that's Jesus, right? Of course, he is the true image of God, but I am not, and neither are you. And if all we have is the example of Jesus, as inspiring as it is, then no matter how much we love chapter three of this image-bearing story, we are all simply stuck in chapter two. As a friend confessed to me, Years ago, on a Sunday like this, talking about holiness, at the end of the service, he came forward, asked for prayer, and he said, I, I want this. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be holy. I want to bear God's image. But I don't know. I'm just not that kind of person. I wonder if you hear yourself in that. If as I speak, you think, sure, maybe for Scott. Maybe for her. Maybe for him. Maybe for them with their parents and their family and their upbringing or their experience at a Bible college or whatever. I'm just not that kind of person. Not with this story, not with this wiring, not with these habits, not with this long way of being. I want to be holy. I want to bear God's image, but I'm just not that kind of person. Well, friends, if that's resounding in your mind today, know this. Despite how alone my friend felt in that moment of his confession, this is actually the truth of every one of us. Every one of us, none of us in ourselves, on our own, are any more prone toward godliness than another. 
Again, as Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If Jesus in God's life is right here and someone is standing here and someone is standing here, it is irrelevant who is closer. It's about being in touch with, coming into the life of, saying right here, Jesus, I'm not... I don't bear God's image. I need you, person out here, running to join them and come. doesn't matter what your story is, what your background is. None of us, where we are in ourselves, are more prone towards godliness. Our hearts have turned away because of sin. And Jesus is the one who lives in the Father, whose arms are open to us saying, come, come follow me, and I will make you new. Because of sin, we are all the wrong kind of person. And Jesus has come for us. As Tim Chester, reflecting on this reality, confesses, I need more than an example, I need help. I need someone to change me. Trying to imitate Jesus on its own only leaves me feeling like a failure. I can't be like him, I can't match up. I need sorting out, I need rescuing, I need forgiving. Because we are just not that kind of person. But here's the good news of the gospel for us today. Jesus is. Jesus is that person who lives in the Father, alive with the Spirit, and whose life bears God's influence. And he is the one who calls us. His gospel is not just the news that he has come to show us what it looks like to be truly human, to bear God's image, to be holy as God is holy, but in the eternal plan of God, Jesus, the true image, has given his life for us on the cross. In the eternal plan of God, Jesus, the true image, has offered up his perfect life on the cross for us, taking the curse of our sin upon himself, that he might give us the gift of himself. That through the grace of faith, our sin would be forgiven, our hearts would be turned back toward him, and our lives would be restored into the redeeming, renewing life of God, the empowering presence of God in us. That in Jesus, because of his life in us, you and I would truly become that person And I gotta say, as I look across this room, I know some of your stories. And who you are today is not who you once were. I'm sure people could have looked at you, probably did. Maybe you had some Christian friends who thought, I'll pray for them, but I don't expect it to happen. They're just not that kind of person. And yet today, you are. Because Christ has claimed your life. Christ Christ has taken you into himself and taught you to live in him. In Jesus, because of his life in us, the gospel declares this hope to us that we can become that person. Women and men made alive with God's grace and glory and holiness. Women and men who are being truly renewed in the image of Christ. Friends, this is God's vision, goal, and agenda for us. Not simply to deal with that thing that we dislike about ourselves, or to help us manage our sin better, but to truly make us into new people in Jesus. 
Listen to the Apostle Paul describe this in his letter to the Colossians. And I'm going here as we tip towards the end because I've already quoted Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. But if we were to keep reading, we would hear Paul unpack this image-bearing story. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 19 For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then eight verses later, Paul describes the mystery of the gospel as simply this, Christ in you, the hope of glory, not just a better version of you cut off from God wherever you are standing, but Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you and him. Paul goes on. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Stay there. Yeah, boom. You're doing it. Thanks, Russ. Colossians 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthen the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Note there that this is a reality, an experience that takes practice and living. It isn't just instant and you are all that image. In that instant of turning to Christ and repentance and faith, we are united with Christ. We are made holy in him before God. And then slowly, bit by bit, as we learn to root our lives in him, strengthen the faith as you were taught, it starts to show. Verse nine, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. And one last verse, Colossians three, verse nine and 10, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Friends, do you hear it? Do you hear the glorious grace of the gospel in this? That the gospel is not simply an invitation to a God-inspired self-improvement project or a reboot on your floundering New Year's resolution that you gave up on weeks ago. The gospel is the astounding news that we need, hope and offer of a truly new life in Jesus through his sin-conquering death and his resurrecting life, being reconciled to God in Christ, being renewed in his image That's what we were made for. That's what the gospel restores for everyone who will bow in repentance and faith to Jesus, for everyone who will turn to Jesus for life. So let me just circle back to where we started this morning. The question today isn't first and foremost, so what do you wanna change? But what is God's agenda for change in you? And if we'll listen, we'll hear it everywhere in scripture. God's agenda for change is for us to be remade in the image of Jesus through the grace of his life in us and us in him. Okay, let me close with two practical thoughts for you. Because it'd be easy to say, yay, amen, help me. And then Tuesday, you're like, ah, I remember the sermon was good. Don't remember what it was, but I felt like my heart was like, yes. I hope that next Sunday it gets yes again. (laughs) But 
Here's the question, how do we keep this vision in front of us? How do we see this vision actually grow in us? Because that's a part of this. Part of our growth in holiness involves having this vision, God's vision, be increasingly what captivates our hearts and what guides us forward. Not just, okay, I wanna deal with this thing, but, because get to that end of that thing and it's what? It's, I've done it, okay, I stopped this habit. No, God's vision is something deeper, better. The whole of our being alive in him. So, two really practical things that both require prayer. So they're not just do it. They're do it on your knees. One, Praying the Lord's Prayer, and not just as a recite off the page, but taking the Lord's Prayer as your prayer, maybe your deepest prayer. I know for me, I so often the Lord's Prayer, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and just sitting in that has pulled me back from seeking my own agendas to God, what matters most is your agenda, your glory, your kingdom, your will. Praying the Lord's Prayer is a track that trains us towards Christ. And so friends, write it down. Put it in your pocket. Screenshot it. Come back to it. Let it breathe in you and train your heart to pursue God's vision. And second, the saints of old would say, study Christ. If, we, if I were to say to you today, if we were to say, hey, let's all become great golfers, let's all like study the, who's, who's the best right now? I'm like a season back. But, okay, let's say Rory, because he's just got a great accent. Rory McElroy. If we all wanted to become Rory McElroy, it's not just about a heart that wants We'd have to give everything we have. We have to turn our heart towards, I wanna watch him play. I wanna know what he eats. I wanna know how he sleeps. I wanna pay attention to his life because there's no way I'm gonna end up swinging like Rory if I don't study his life. And it's the same with Jesus. If we want to come to live our lives in him, we need to know him. We need to study Christ. Go back to the gospels and just read them and say, okay, Jesus, who are you and how are you? How do you relate? How do you live? Show me your glory. Hebrews 12, verse one and two says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those that have gone before us and have lived the faith through suffering and blessing, let us throw everything off that easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith as we fix our eyes on him, we see God's vision for us. Let's pray. I just ask, invite you, what is God saying to you in the midst of this morning? Where is God stirring hope, stirring longing, convicting, encouraging you? And what will it look like for you to say yes to the Spirit today who's speaking in love? Let's give you a moment to speak your own response to God.